Hi, everyone. This is Ryan Lewis, and welcome to another episode of Training Data, the most rich and compelling data science podcast available. Today, we're going to be talking about how to appropriately structure uh, machine learning or AI uh, research projects. And the reason that we're interested in discussing this is that if you follow the news at all, you'll see sort of two growing schools of thought around the research and deployment of AI-related technologies. On the one hand, which is certainly the, the most obvious or vocal, is sort of the, the hype cycle in terms of how AI can be applied to almost really any application you can think of. And while we're obviously certainly excited about this, uh, that comes with some risk. And essentially, I think what, what the other sort of group or voice uh, voices that are starting to raise is, is how to actually apply these technologies in, in a meaningful way. And I, and I think what we're starting to see is we've heard certain people say that ML projects should be boring in the sense that they should be systematically deployed uh, and measured and quantified. And so we have a sort of a special audio, uh, member in the booth with us today who's going to help us talk through how to not only structure projects, but then where we see some of the most exciting trends coming um, in the ML domain and what that means for uh, future both research projects and product development. So with us today, we have John Sippel. He's a senior software engineer for machine learning at Google, as well as a lieutenant commander in the, in the US Navy, and as well as a reserve lead for the AI portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit, or DIU. John, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of it. Excellent. Also, we have a senior data scientist uh, Nick Weir at Cosmic Works. Nick, good to see you. Thanks. Good to see you, Ryan. All right. So we're going to dive uh, just right in. And, and so I think it'd be great, you know, when we're talking about how to structure research projects, this is something that kind of gets overlooked or certain hand-waved away. And yet it's increasingly important, particularly as the expectations for these types of technologies grows. And so with that, I'd start with John and just saying, in your experience in supporting both public sector projects as well as private sector projects in all different types of machine learning from geospatial to natural language processing to start from the top how have you structured projects in the past what are some best what are some best practices well i think i would start with uh, really four four a four step process it's effectively the um, the scientific method so the four steps include analysis hypothesis synthesis and validation so starting off in uh, trying to uh, undertake a machine learning or data science project, the first thing that um, I'd like to kind of focus in on is the analysis phase, which is understanding the problem. What is exactly the problem? What is the stakeholder's need? It could be a commercial entity. It could be a government entity. But what exactly is the, the problem? Why, why is the current system not good enough? And what do they think uh, as stakeholders uh, machine learning or AI could contribute to the problem? And often I hear a problem along the same lines of, well, we've collected so much data. We have so much data. We know there's some sort of value in that data. We'd, we'd like to um, mine that data and understand our customers a little bit better or may be able to make better predictions if a product will be sold or uh, that kind of thing. So. They, they generally start out with a very, very basic and very vague problem. And so the in the analysis phase, you know, it's really an, a process of extracting what their needs are and translating that and framing it into a machine learning problem. So that's a, that's a huge piece. And then, you know, as part of the analysis, you want to kind of understand what's been done so far, what's the state of the art. Um, if possible, you don't want to necessarily reinvent the wheel. You don't want to start from scratch. Um, and then, and then, 
you know, the, in the analysis phase, we talk about what kind of data, what's the inventory that they have, what kind of uh, resources do they have, um, how deep and how wide is the data, what's the quality of the data as well. Um, and then, and then um, in that piece, we say, well, what is the perfect outcome? What would the solution look like in an AI-enabled machine? So let's just draw a black box. Here's your data that comes in, and here's the answer that comes out. And then I, I try to elicit a lot of information from the stakeholders in that, well, what does it look like? What kind of data? What kind of answer are you looking for, assuming a perfect system? Um, and, then, and then what I try to do, what I learned recently in a couple different instances, it's very, very important to kind of produce a picture. What does, the, what does the user, what would the analyst, what would the end user, the consumer see as the, as the outcome? It's not just good enough to say, here's a prediction score with this blah, yeah. blah, blah. You have to actually go to the analyst and say, here it is. And when you, when you go to the analyst or the end user, the consumer, they'll ask a bunch of questions um, about that data and why is it like that. And that's very, very important to inform the the follow the follow on process so that's kind of the that's kind of at a, at a high level the analysis and I have to emphasize how important that is and how much work that really is this is not a one hour deal this is the thing where you actually have to sit down with the stakeholders over multiple sessions and I usually like to have short like thirty minute sessions I don't want to have a five hour brainstorming session usually you kind of get burned out that way but I like to have like incremental sessions so so. It, kind of policy at Google is we keep very short meetings, we talk about it, and then we, we, we have a half hour session, introductory session, talk about it, and then we follow up and we follow up. And a lot of times before we even start really thinking about machine learning and AI solutions, we spend many sessions with our stakeholders just trying to refine what does this system look like. So, but we haven't done anything inside the black box. We don't even know what kind of algorithms are inside there. So, um, so but once we've kind of sat down with a stakeholder and we got a good idea, we, can, we go into the next phase, which is the hypothesis phase, um, where we think, well, how would we solve this problem? And we think there is a possible solution. Um, and we frame it in a way that's testable because it's a hypothesis. So you have to test it. And then we go into the synthesis phase, which is developing the proof of concept. Um, and we initially come up with a basic uh, prototype, not a heavyweight concept, but something that proves the point. And then we go to validation. And one thing I wanted to mention in the analysis phase is we ask the question, how do you know it works? Yeah. Uh, we ask that a question a lot. <laughs> I still don't know sometimes in Geo. But you have to early on, you have to early on specify or try to specify what are your performance measures. And then in the validation phase, you go in and validate it. You, 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 you know, initially, you know, this is a iterative cycle. Maybe your first pass on validation will be, um, you know, not as great as you want it to be, or maybe not as insightful. But then you go on in, in, into the second phase of this. Then you go back in through the analysis, hypothesis, synthesis, and validation phase for the second pass, third pass, et cetera. So that's kind of a high-level way I approach it. I think there's there's a lot to unpack there, and I know we could have just a, a whole episode on either each one of those steps or even some sub aspects of, of those steps. I mean, the, just as you know, we spend a lot of time with our partners just building data sets and then figuring out how to open source them. In the process of develop of developing those sets, there is a ton of thought, just months of effort in terms of going through figuring out what should be labeled, how it should be constructed, mm -hmm. and I just think about that's us starting from a clean sheet. It's actually a lot harder in most cases to start with a customer that perhaps has lots of legacy information 
which may or data, which may or may not actually be useful in any capacity of what they want. And so I'm curious, maybe just a couple of things that you see are, are major areas that people are overlooking. I know you mentioned evaluation met, uh, uh, metrics. I know certainly Adam and, and Nick can talk uh, can talk to you about sort of the back and forth we have about what is even makes sense to measure because even a slight tuning of a measurement can really change the performance outcome and essentially change whether you call a project a success or uh, perhaps a failure. Yeah, so uh, a couple things here I want to mention. I think a lot of times when you say what people are overlooking, I think um, in what I've seen over and over uh, is that people look at the machine learning process kind of backwards, kind of the opposite from what I just explained. So I didn't talk about any kind of platform. I didn't talk about any kind of software technology. That's kind of towards the end. And so I, I would say what people tend to overlook is they, they buy the platform and then say, okay, this, they have the technology. Okay, now we can do machine learning. It's actually the, quite the opposite. You start with a problem, come up with a concept, and then the algorithm, and then you unpack it and put the, find the right technology for your design. And John, we certainly see this exa exactly what you just described pretty frequently. How do you, uh, what do you find to be an effective way to help people flip that thinking? Right. Um, so, what I try to do is I say, you know, great. It's great that there are all these technologies, and I'm I'm a big fan of those technologies. But we have to. I, I try to tell them, hey, we. It's not about having a technology and trying to find a problem. Let's turn that around. Let's look at the problem first. Let's unpack the problem first. Because there are many technologies. And yeah, uh, you know, you, you can just do an internet search for all the different platforms that are out there, open source, uh, uh, stuff you can get licensed, etc. But, bef you know, it, it makes it um, more systematic. And I recommend a systematic approach. Because a lot of times people will say, oh, I've got this product, this product, this product, this product, which one do I buy? Well, I don't know. Um, so let's try to find out. So, I try to focus the conversation back onto the problem, and that generally tends to work okay. And, I, and I'm curious, do you see uh, these sorts of challenges in both uh, the commercial market as well as government market? Because the, the, sometimes the motivation or the desired outcome yeah. is very different, whereas making a financial return or having an uptick in perhaps ad penetration is a much more quantifiable thing than saying, there's mission value here for whatever the case may be. How do you, does that impact people's expectations in terms of how these projects should be run or is it about the yeah. same? Yeah, I think, I think from my experience kind of having looked at, you know, you know, the, the government sector as well as the commercial sector, I think in the commercial world, people are a little bit more um, uh, willing to take a risk, a measured risk, try different things and accept failure. Uh, in fact, you know, what I really think is where you're really successful is where you try a lot of things and ex expect to have failures, not the perfect outcomes. And you're willing to say, I think I can do this. I have the technology in-house to start to put this thing together. What I've seen a lot in, in government is this hesitance. Oh, we, there's no way that we would do machine learning. That just is, you know, that's something that's yeah, esoteric. Well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I've seen instances in the government where it's done very successfully and other instances where people say, well, we just want to buy the tool. There's got to be a tool out there that we, you know, that, that matches exactly our needs, and so let's go find it. So a lot of machine learning or AI projects kind of get derailed from the problem, understanding the problem, building a, a solution that 
solves that particular problem to let's do a market survey and find a tool yeah. that hits exactly what we want. And that can become a, a, a very difficult task. And I think it's, you know, we, we say this a lot on, um, in this podcast, we, it's implied in, in a lot of our blogs, that this whole domain, and since it's still in, in many ways, it's, it's early stages, mm -hmm. it's still very much defined by, by learning through doing. So you can do a survey, you can do a market estimate, and those are, those are important. Yep. Uh, but when it comes to that final last mile in terms of making the analyst or business end user, whatever the case, whoever that may be, uh, successful, that really takes a lot of iteration. And you mentioned that in uh, sort of your third step when you're doing the synthesis piece. Mm -hmm. I'm curious like, what some of your thoughts are on best practices as you're going through that and trying different models, trying different techniques, yeah. because one of the things that we're always trying to balance is how far do you go in that preliminary testing from either model perspective or how we're breaking out a data set. Um, not because it's not, the big debate for us is just resources and time. Like how far do you go on this before you say, all right, this, this looks like a pretty good solution. We're gonna kick this off yeah. and we'll build sort of our early either prototype or baseline around that. Yeah, so I think um, in, that, in that synthesis phase, so you already have a concept. You're in the, you've gone to the hypothesis phase and you say, you know, I believe that this technique, you know, we're going to you know, build a neural network classifier that then gives us an answer with some sort of probability, some sort of um, ac measure of, of performance, accuracy, whatever. Um, okay, so the, the, the key thing is, and I, I've seen this over and over in successful projects, is you, you try a prototype first. And this prototype is really principally focused on understanding the data and applying the algorithms. You, you may try different types of approaches. You might try, you know, something that's, mm, I know, su su with a support vector machine, a neural net. You may try a different, a various different, different approaches and evaluate their performance. Um, and, and a lot of times, it's a unique combination of different foundational algorithms that you tie together into, you know, a, a prototypical or a prototype baseline. Okay, so you get that in place and you you generate some results. And this is where I like to engage the stakeholders and say, this is, these are the initial results, go try to validate them. So in our, um, in our, in our smart buildings work that we've recently done, we developed a pipeline in a a general concept in about uh, a four-week process, and in in four weeks we came we went from just the data to a solution, and and then we went to the stakeholders and said, does this kind of look right? Does this are we heading in the right direction? And they came back with some critique, some suggestions, but we knew from that point we were on the right track. So that initial prototype was kind of giving us um, uh, validation that our concept was okay. So once we got to that point. Then we thought, okay, how do we operationalize this at scale? Um, because we were just essentially building one little model or a couple, straining a couple models together. But in our case, we're dealing with literally thousands of models that have to operate simultaneously, concurrently with zero configuration. So the second piece of that is once we get that algorithm validated, we, we, we de design the pipeline, the operational the 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 full scale pipeline and so it goes from the kind of the science and the and the algorithmic and the mathematics and statistics to the hardcore you know data plumbing and engineering software engineering um, and and so you, I the the best practice I would recommend is kind of separating those two and understanding what stage you're in. Going back to the to your two parts comment, uh, John, I'm 
on the first part, when you went to, after doing some initial work and then going to the stakeholders, what sort of feedback did you get? Was it more on the technical side, like, i.e., hey, this meets our performance requirement, which is much more measurable, or was it more of this looks and feels right? Because it's usually on that latter category, whether you're, it doesn't matter what, who the end user is, where it's really hard to find the, that type of solution where suddenly people say, I can see how this fits in. Forget the performance. I can see it. What, what, how do you, what are you gleaning from them in, in, in this case? Yeah, well, first of all, I've seen a lot of machine learning projects where you know, there was a misunderstanding. You know, the, the data scientist or the um, AI engineer thought this is what they wanted, and the results were the wrong, you know, they built the full pipeline, and the results were the wrong, it was the wrong thing. It really never got used. Um, so when, when I produce some results and take those to the stakeholder from that prototype, one of the first things I want to know is, is this the right kind of an answer? Is this the thing that they're looking for? It, just the, the you know, if it's an anomaly detection thing, are we finding the right kind of broken devices? Are we finding the right kind of anomalies? Um, are these meaningful? Now, I can't, at this point, it's very hard to say in the real world what your, you know, what your AUC curve is very specifically, but you get some anecdotal results back. And it says, you know, out of the, say, 50 examples that, that I was able to pull out, you know, 30 of them were actually very good. You know, they were solid. And so when I when I got that feedback, it was like, okay, good. We're on the right track. We're, we're getting the right answer. Um, and it was a validation for me to know that, you know, the, this thing is the right thing. And they came back and said, yeah, we would like to see this thing at full scale. So then that, that gave me a lot of confidence that I'm building the right thing. Now, do we have full comprehensive coverage of of the metrics at this point? No, we don't. And oftentimes, in the real world, where you lack, um, you know, a, a lot of label data, um, and you're dealing with kind of unsupervised problems, unsupervised ML problems, it's very, very difficult to get really thorough validation early on. But um, even even you know, fifty data points examples, 50 examples, and saying, all right, 30 of them were reasonable, um, and understanding the form of the examples, and then having them tell us, yeah, we want you to not only tell us that it's an anomaly, but we also want you to tell us what features cause the anomalies. And that, that kind of gives me more insight into, into, into how to um, develop the, the full-scale solution. And it's really important as I, uh, as I see the way you're kind of telling the story that you can work with the, the customer or uh, to figure out really what they need as you're going through it, right? Because a lot of the time you won't necessarily even have that picture getting started. And um, that's a little bit different from how we have been structuring um, some of our prototyping efforts through the SpaceNet challenges where mm -hmm. we have this pretty well-scoped problem uh, where we're asking participants in the challenges to identify building footprints or road networks. And I guess sometimes you'll have this fairly tightly scoped uh, uh, situation where you really know what the outputs are that you want. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about things like crowdsourcing platforms as ways, ways to explore different prototype options, ways to, to address a problem um, early in this process where you could then take whatever the best solution might be. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, Crowdsourcing is definitely a, a very good validation approach um, in, in many different areas. I've done quite a bit of work in crowdsourcing in terms of uh, 
understanding uh, like generative models and language models. Uh, is this does this look like a real human would have written this this sentence or this paragraph? So, yeah, a lot of times where standard performance measures like the blue score in in, in language doesn't necessarily give you the full picture. You get a good complementary understanding of how your performance is by crowdsourcing. I would never make that my first and or my only measure of performance. Uh, but it certainly is a um, it certainly is a very valuable um, complementary performance measure. But what about using crowdsourcing as a way to get the prototype algorithms? Things like Kaggle challenges oh, yeah. or Topcoder challenges, things like that. I think that's great. I, I think when you have scoped a machine learning problem very well, and what you're looking for is 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 understandable, like in the Kaggle challenges, um, it's a great way to to get contributors to come up with some very interesting uh, solutions. Now, I think from having worked on a lot of machine learning problems, a lot of the hard work is already done. Really, the, the hard part is done because you as as the host of one of these challenges, you have to go through and understand the problem and you have to refine the problem. And then there's just that one piece in this overall development pipeline where it's like develop the algorithm. And even when you have that winning algorithm, you still have to figure out, well, how do I operationalize that algorithm? So they, that piece, the development of the algorithm, those competitors are only contributing one small piece in the overall life cycle of, a, say, a machine learning solution. And kind of extending the topic of challenges, I mean, the one of our main reasons, right, that we're looking to do that, right, is to increase collaboration in, the, in our case on a specific mm -hmm. application mainly mainly geospatial i think that that touches on a broader uh topic though which is as we move into companies and organizations starting to deploy these types of technologies in real fashion in, mm -hmm. in an enterprise it starts it makes the problem much more tractable and people start recognizing hey there's some serious gaps um at a much at a broader level you know I, recently we've heard discussions uh, there should be a national level data strategy. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who's kind of straddled both both uh, sectors, I'm curious, where do you see like key areas for collaboration? Is it something more along the lines of continuing to focus on algorithm development? Is there is it or is it more broad than that? Are there is there some validity in saying we need to be more serious about opening data or things to that effect? Yeah, I, I think I think opening data is is definitely a a piece of that. But I, I see some. I'd like to take a couple steps back from that point. Um, I think what I've seen in the government, uh, working with government and, and deploying AI, is uh, the the government kind of looks at it from in a backwards way, and and the attitude is, well, let's go into the commercial spaces, into the private industry, and find that right solution. Like I was mentioning, um, a lot of market surveys are occurring, but rarely, rarely do I see the, the solution out there in the marketplace. There's a lot of front-end work that needs to be um, accomplished before you can go find that industry solution. So um, let, let me explain that a little more. Um, I've done a lot of work in, especially in the DoD, but in other areas of government, where we've looked at pipelines. There was a process in place already. Maybe it's very, very manual, but there's a process in place that works. And the the common problem is, well, 
there's this manual process we have in place that works, but it doesn't scale. We're, you know, the data volume is simply so that we can't add another 20 analysts. We can't add another 50 analysts. We, can't, we just simply can't, we can't keep up. So this is a good case for, for machine learning. So where I think in this kind of a problem, where I think the government could do a better job from a st strategic point of view is to understand how to unpack this problem, how to lay out the pipeline that existing process that needs to be automated with and enabled with machine learning. And then to say, what, what are the major transformations along that pipeline? And then say, what, what, what does the in and out of each one of those transformations have to look like? And then once that pipeline has been built conceptually, then we go to the commercial industry and, and say, well, we need to have an image super resolution stage in this particular part of the pipeline. What are your offerings? And we don't want a stovepipe solution. We want a solution that is API enabled that can fit into our existing workflow. Um, so I think, I think that's kind of the perspective uh, from the government we should take a look at. And in the commercial world, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be building products that are kind of standalone applications that solve that one problem. They should fit into an ecosystem that kind of mirrors or automates an existing manual process. And I, it's just, it's, it's the old adage, right? I mean, you live in interesting times. We certainly do. Because on the one hand, you have this debate that we're having right mm -hmm. now, which is how do we uh, actually deploy and productize these things in meaningful ways and make them uh, reproducible? So we're not right. going out and doing some massive survey every time. As much as I love making PowerPoint charts, <laughs> uh, you know, that's not always the solution, believe it or not. The other solutions lie in Excel. Uh, that's just me, anyways. <laughs> um, but then the, the other piece, then, is we have all this discussion about really tactical issues. And on the same hand, we have just sort of massive acceleration on the, the basic research side from how new models can be deployed, eking mm -hmm. out performance at levels that just a couple of years ago we would not have assumed was possible. And you don't want to disrupt that. You want to keep riding that wave. Yeah. And so to, to change gears a little bit, you know, now looking at, let's just assume we have some process that works, mm -hmm. and we're at, whoever the end user may be, you know, let's look at what's occurring in open research. What are some of the key things, right, that, that you're seeing that are really exciting, whether or not they're easy to be deployed right now, or even if you have a good use case for them? Yeah, I think there are a couple of really exciting things that are coming out in, in AI nowadays. Um, one of those areas is in attention models. I think that is, um, is, is really going to, has already transformed several sectors, uh, several problems, problem spaces uh, like translation. Um, attention models uh, have transformed the way language translation works. Now, attention models really started in natural language processing, but they ex the, the capabilities and the algorithms actually extend far more for, to far broader problem spaces, like in image processing, um, audio processing, any kind of signal processing. And just for the listeners who might not be familiar with attention models, can you give us just a quick sure. 101? We don't, we don't like them if they don't know. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. So, sorry so, imagine, so imagine you're, you're uh, in the process of you build a system that's supposed to predict the next word. Um, so I, I'll give you a sentence. I grew up in Paris and I speak fluent. What's the next word? 
Well, the con- you would probably guess French. You probably wouldn't guess you know, Russian because the context isn't right. So what an attention model is very good at is looking at the context of that sentence that's been generated so far. And in the process of making that next prediction, it looks at all the words that have been said previously, but it selects those words that were that were most meaningful, most important, and places additional weights on that. In this case, the word Paris and the word speak would be weighted more highly than uh, than the other words in the sentence, and would lead to uh, making a prediction on French versus on Russian, for example. So that's really where attention models can do this. Now, what's amazing about attention models, and there's there's a there's a whole um, discipline of sequence to sequence models, uh, you know, starting with like LSTMs. Um, but what is amazing about these attention models is because they place selective weights across the context, um, they are able to expand their uh, focus, I guess, across a much larger context than, say, the current uh, LSTMs can. And so just getting into the weeds on this a little bit Mm -hmm. here, as you mentioned, this has been super effective in a lot of natural language processing type problems. What what is it that you think will make this um, valuable in something like image analysis uh, uh, beyond what we can currently get out of convolutional neural nets? Absolutely. So I think um, one of the uh, areas or one of the recent papers on image transformer illustrates it quite nicely. Uh, So the attention models learn a particular context. Let's say you have the problem in um, identifying individuals in a grainy image. Uh, And, you know, the images are very, very grainy. Uh, And uh, you really can't, you need, the images themselves, um, the, the downstream algorithms can't really if you're looking for pose detection or whatever, really can't process the image very well. They can't even identify that there's a human. So what the image transformer is able to do is provide a super resolution solution. So it it is trained on images that contain people. And based on that, what it will do is it will enhance what it has on the initial image and fill in those blank pixels and refine the image based on previous uh, uh, examples of where people are in that image and refine the image and fill it in and enable a, a, what we call super resolution so that that it places data into the image that wasn't actually part of the image but it, it was because it was trained on the context of looking at individuals it's able to form better shapes of individuals and refine the image and add to the image so that the downstream processing let's say pose detection works much better and taking it kind of out another level, something that we hear, uh, we get a ton of interest in is time series analysis right. of, of images, you know, multiple images taken over the same the same area uh, over time for overhead imagery. Do you think this presents an opportunity in that domain? Oh, a- absolutely. So, um, you know, when you're talking about time series on images, uh, you can massively grow the data. Uh, and it becomes very difficult with uh, let's say an LSTM or sequence to sequence standard sequence to sequence approaches to kind of maintain a long context. So attention based models will enable you to have a much wider context. So if you're looking at um, a series of images uh, and there was an interesting event that happened, you know, many 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 frames previously, um, you'll have a hard time with 
LSTMs. But with attention-based models, you can follow, uh, you can have a much larger context and identify that interesting event and then match it to something new that's coming in the image stream. Great. For if there are any, if there's anyone who really wants to dig into this, are there papers that you recommend they check out? Yeah, um, there's a great paper on a couple of great papers on on attention-based modeling. There's one paper uh, by Lucas Kaiser and and uh, and, and team uh, called "Attention Is All You Need." It's a great paper, a great introductory start to it. Uh, I would also recommend uh, a good introductory tutorial from Alex Smola that was presented at ICML uh, 2019 this year. It was a tutorial. And then specifically with regard to images, I would recommend the paper called Image Transformer that goes into a lot of details about super resolution using the transformer attention models as well as image completion, the image completion task. And there's another paper coming from Google and ICCV this year on this topic. Right? Oh, yeah. There are, uh, there are several of them. Okay. Uh, and so <laughs> this is a really hot topic, and there's a lot of uh, research involved right now, active research involved in, in, in uh, transformers. Uh, there's another paper that I thought was very, very interesting is um, in the insertion transformer. So sometimes you don't always have sequences, ordered sequences, but you have sets, and then you want to generate off of a set. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you, let's say you want to create a summarizer of some sort, a, a textual summarizer, um, and, or, and you want it to generate a summary. So rather than giving it, uh, you know, you, you tr you have a trained language model, right? But uh, you start and seed the sequence with a set of words, common words. So we could say uh, democratic debate, and it would then, based on its language model, be able to generate a, a sentence or a paragraph that relates to the democratic debates. Great. And, and what's kind of cool about this is a lot of this work is, is new. It's very recent, yeah. just in terms of uh, papers being released really in the last six months, as yeah. well as well as some of these uh, uh, webinar materials. I'm curious, where do you see some of this research going? Uh, in addition to some of the topics we've had on, well, I, I, I think I think um, one needs to look at attention models as not an NLP domain or an image processing domain. It's yeah. it's a real it's a different way of thinking in terms of machine learning. Um, so. I'll give you one example where I think it can be used and really hasn't really been, been uh, hasn't shown its value quite yet. I think in the area of fraud detection and, uh, and anomaly detection. So, for example, in our case, you can turn this uh, sentence prediction problem into an anomaly detection thing. Yeah. So I grew up in Paris and I speak fluent Chinese. You would think that's kind of strange but that kind of that same kind of paradigm will work so if you have a if you're trying to unravel a fraud uh, a fraud scheme right so there's a series of events and let's say we're talking about um, a patient care problem right so there's a uh, you know, there there may be fraudulent care providers or whatever that are overcharging uh, or or over prescribing a particular type of drug well you can look at the overall uh, standard sequence of patient care and then use something like attention to recognize where the, the sequence isn't matching with, with what it's learned overall. And it would be a very good uh, mechanism for fraud detection uh, or anomaly, any, you know, a general purpose anomaly detection system. Excellent. And in, to kind of close things out, you know, in addition to attention networks, what are some other things you're tracking, either in the basic or applied research domain? Yeah, I'm really excited about... Um, reinforcement learning and controls. We will see much more of that in the near future. Um, 
controls is really going through a transformation, uh, you know, where controls were very much con uh, limited to very pristine and managed environments. Now deep reinforcement learning is changing that, where systems can act reliably and do the right thing even when the environment isn't pristine and uh, completely controlled. So I think uh, deep reinforcement learning is a big thing. And the area that I'm particularly interested in is in deep reinforcement learning with um, off-policy, uh, agents that can learn off-policy. Um, so the common approach right now is you have reinforcement learning where the agent interacts with a simulation. And then once it's done really well in the simulation, then you let it loose on the robot or whatever. Um, a lot of times you can't really simulate for whatever reason. You can't simulate the environment reliably. But you do have lots of examples of how yeah. a suboptimal system actually worked. And so it can learn initial policy from there. And then once it goes live, then it can improve upon that suboptimal policy over time. So I think that's a really interesting area of research. That's uh, something I'm tracking. And you're in a really unique spot, just given your, your roles and all your experience. So it's great to see you out there and talking about some of these topics, some of your work and observations. Um, with that, I'd just say, John, I really appreciate your time. Nick, thanks for coming on to the show today. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Take care, all. Thanks. Space Club Rule 25. Don't tell me what to do. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also, a shout-out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>